<clears throat> and I've had two weeks off, and so I'm really excited to be here this morning. I've had two weeks off from preaching, and so hopefully I don't get too loud or too obnoxious with you guys, but uh, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm probably going to need your help this morning, so hopefully you guys are ready. You guys ready to talk about the Word of God this morning? I hope so. Yeah. Some of you are. Good. I'm glad. Thank you very much for that. You know, um, thanks Cameron and Alyssa for an awesome morning of worship. That was great. Um, you know, Cameron talks about going to his class reunion, and I think, oh, that's cool. He gets to go to his class reunion, and he says 10 years, and I'm like, oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> 10 years. What a baby. Um, how many of you have ever been to a class reunion? Anybody been to a class reunion? A uh, good part of the room, good. It, there are lots of reasons to go to reunions, aren't there? I mean, you, there are some, sometimes we go because we want to catch up with old friends. That's what reunions were created for, right? But I kind of feel like maybe Facebook and social media has gotten rid of some of that reason to go to reunions because anybody we want to keep up with, uh, we're still keeping up with every day, right, through Facebook or Twitter or, or whatever you're on. So we, we, we love to go and see uh, how old people look. Like, how is it that we still look so good and these people who we went to school with look so old? What happened to them, right? And, and come on, somewhere down in your sinful heart, don't you love to see some of the transformation? I mean, just like deep down inside, doesn't some little sinful part of you want to see the captain of the football team, the real big muscular jock that now has a bald spot in a beer belly or, you know, see the, the homecoming queen who's had four kids and now, you know, like gravity is starting to take its toll or... Uh, or like the guy who was voted most likely, likely to succeed and he's still working at the Taco Bell that he worked at 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I mean, imagine if you went to high school with Bill Gates and you lost track of him and you, you see him at his high school reunion. You think, you know, Bill, last I heard you dropped out of Harvard. Did you ever make anything of yourself? I mean, what, whatever happened with that? You know, we love to see those transformation stories. But what about the positive transformation stories too? Those kind of capture our hearts, don't they? Like, like when the girl that everyone thought was a loser uh, graduates cum laude from college and now she owns her own successful small business. We love that. We celebrate that. Or, or, or the guy who was always getting shoved in his locker, you know, that guy, and he's been doing CrossFit and like now he can bench press the whole football team, you know, and you see him and you think, oh, good for him. That's great, man. I mean, uh, we, we, we love to see those positive transformation stories as well. There's no doubt about it. I mean, whether it's extreme makeover or the biggest loser or your class reunion, we love a good transformation story. And I got to tell you that one of the very best is found right in your own Bible. And so if you have your Bible with you, uh, open it to Acts chapter 9. If you've got a, your Bible on an iPhone or an iPad or, or some kind of phone uh, electronic device, go ahead and open it to Acts chapter 9. Uh, we are in chapter 29 of the story. We've been using this book, most of you know, uh, to go through the entire story of the Bible. And we've got a couple of these left at the Info Hub, uh, but we're almost done. Uh, if you're new here today, I want to tell you, you came in right at the end of this series. We, we are at week 29 out of 31, but that's great because you get to see how this story ends. And I've got to tell you that the Bible has the greatest ending of all time. I mean, the good guys win, the bad guys are destroyed. It's what we always want. Every great story, uh, the Bible ends that way. And so over the next three weeks, we get to talk about that, and I'm exciting. We're going to uh, today look at the adventures of a man that we know as Paul. Uh, a man that uh, we, we learn in the Bible is originally named Saul. But to get the, fir- the full picture of what's happening, we actually have to go back a chapter to chapter 28 in the story uh, to flash back to something that happens there but that we didn't talk about last week. And so uh, it's in your Bible, Acts 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be here on the side screens. Acts 9, verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now Saul, this man Saul, was an enemy of the first followers of Jesus. 
And he would go from town to town looking for people who were following what they called at the time the way. You know, when Jesus was teaching so many times, he would say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so the people on the outside of this movement and even people on the inside had started to call it the way because that phrase was so associated with Jesus. And so Saul was a Roman citizen, uh, and his job, his mission, uh, was to go looking for these people that were part of the way, what we would call now the first Christians, and to eradicate that from the Roman Empire. And he would use any means necessary. He would try to drive them out of the Roman Empire or, or even be a part of having them killed. And in fact, in, in chapter 8, we see some of the one of the disciples, a man by the name of Stephen, uh, who's testifying before uh, the high council, and he's stoned to death. And one of the scriptures at the end of chapter 8 says that Saul was there giving his approval to Stephen's death. And so uh, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Uh, continue verse 1. He, was, he went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, this would have been very interesting for Saul because if you had asked Saul, he would say, well, I'm not persecuting a person. I'm persecuting a movement. Like I'm persecuting this church, this group of people. And it's interesting that Jesus would say, why are you persecuting me? And what he seems to be saying in effect is, hey, you say something bad about the church? You're saying something bad about me. And so some of us sometimes like to say, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't really love the church. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. You love me, you're going to love my bride. You love me, you're going to love the church. Why are you persecuting me, he said. And verse 6, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but not see anyone. Uh, Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And so here's what happens. Uh, Saul is led into Damascus where he hears from God again. And God tells him to go to this house where he'll meet a man named Ananias. Now, Ananias was also part of the way. And this could have been problematic for Ananias and the rest of the disciples because they know that Saul is not really their friend. Right, And so if you run into Saul in Damascus, you probably would be scared. But fortunately, God appears to Ananias too and says, hey, this guy Saul is coming. You need to meet with him. And so uh, fortunately, the Lord appears to him and tells him to expect Saul. And so skip down to verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And so that's the setup for chapter 29 of the story. And what happens in chapter 29 of the story is really an amazing transformation. From this point on, this very moment that's marked Saul's life, uh, the man that we now know as Paul uh, becomes one of the greatest evangelists for the kingdom of Jesus Christ of all time, maybe the greatest evangelist of all time. It's a really incredible transformation story. The, the persecutor becomes the proponent. You know, and Saul's switch from enemy of Jesus to faith in Jesus is really just a great reminder for us that there's no life outside the reach of God's love. 
You know, there's no one that it's too late for. Like God hasn't given up on anyone. And so be encouraged that his grace and forgiveness are so good. You know, don't give up on that person in your family. You don't give up on your friend. Don't give up on your kid or your spouse. You might think there is no way that God could change his or her life. But the transformation that you're going to see in Saul is so incredible. You're going to say, you know what? There is no life outside the reach of God's love. And so what happens is Saul starts meeting with the other believers, other people from the way. And in the book of Acts, it says that he grew more and more powerful. Saul did. He grew more and more powerful and that he baffled the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He was the savior that had been promised to the Jewish people. It's an amazing transformation and the disciples can't believe it. I mean, literally, they can't believe it. Some of them don't believe it. And others of them are frankly a little bit put off by what Saul is teaching the church in Damascus because he's going around to even these non-Jewish people and telling them about Jesus. And there's some conflict among people in the way, uh, you know, the, the people that we would call Christians. Now imagine that. There's conflict among Christians. Um, but there's conflict because some of them, see, thought that really you had to become Jewish before you could become a Christian. <clears throat> and so there's all the, the uh, rites that go with that. There's all the practices that go with that uh, that came with being a Jew that have to go first. And Saul was saying, no, no, Jesus alone. It's Jesus alone. Jesus is enough. And that caused some dissension and some strife. Now, nothing serious <clears throat> in the first church, but it was enough to make Saul think about, you know, what is it that God's really called me to do? And what he realizes is that God wants to use him to take the gospel message of Jesus Christ to the Gentile people, or the non-Jewish people, to take it to the rest of the world. And he's so excited about it that it's almost like he says to the other disciples, you know what, you guys take Jerusalem, I'll take the rest of the world. And so that's what happens. From there, Saul takes three missionary journeys, at least three that we know about today. And we don't have time to cover them all today. It's why it's so important, why we keep encouraging you to read in the story, because they're all kind of covered in chapter 29 of the story. But he visited these far-off places, and he planted churches, and, and he became known by a new name, the name Paul. Now, some people will say that what happened was that God changed his name when he met him on the road to Damascus, but Scripture doesn't really tell us that. Instead, what's more likely is that many people who were born uh, under Roman rule as a Jew would have had two names from birth. They would have been given a Hebrew name and and a Roman name or a Greek name. So Paul is actually the Greek version of the Hebrew name Saul. And, and much of the outside world would have related better to the Greek name Paul. And so it's likely that Paul just starts going by his other name, Paul, instead of the Hebrew name Saul, because he's trying to reach these people outside of, of the Jewish areas. And so uh, Paul once wrote that I have become all things to all people so that by uh, any means some may be saved. And so uh, even as something as simple as a name <clears throat> was important uh, to him. And so people probably related to the name uh, Paul. And so that's what he starts using. And so Paul helps to plant all these churches and he visits all of these churches outside of Jerusalem. And, and later, Paul starts writing letters to all of these churches, uh, letters like Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Colossians. In fact, we have about 13 of Paul's letters to these churches and to believers in these churches as part of the New Testament. <clears throat> Pretty unbelievable that this guy that was breathing out murderous threats against the followers of Jesus... Uh, has wrote about half of the New Testament, I mean, 13 of these letters. And, um, you know, and, and these letters were written, some of them, as sermons. They were meant to be read before the church. I mean, think about it, that Paul was really the first multi-site pastor. 
I mean, he, he might have said he had one church in many locations, right? He had one church, and he would write these letters, and people would come to the place where they would attend church, and they would say, who's preaching today? Oh, it's Paul. Oh, great. I love Paul. And they go, oh, it's via letter. Oh, I hate when he does that. And it's like another video sermon, you know, but, but many, okay, many of the first churches outside of Jerusalem uh, were started or at least heavily influenced by Paul. You know, the scripture tells us that he breathed out murderous threats against the first Christians. Well, and then he became probably the biggest influencer in the early church outside of Jerusalem. How did this happen? And what could cause a man to, to, to switch from being the biggest enemy of Christ to the biggest proponent of Christ? What in the world could cause such a transformation? Well, I think we can find that back in Acts 9.17. And so if you read that verse again, when Ananias said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the key right there. Paul's life, his mission, his purpose were only able to be transformed because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what filled Paul up and marked his world and changed his life forever. So, if the Holy Spirit is so powerful, what is it? And how do we get it? And what does it do? And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning. You know, the Holy Spirit is an often misunderstood and misrepresented aspect of God. Some of you may be getting a little squirrely in your seat just thinking that we're going to talk about this because maybe you grew up in a church tradition where the Holy Spirit was overemphasized, like that the only things that mattered were gifts from the Spirit, gifts like a healing and speaking in tongues. And so you come from that tradition where now when you hear that, you kind of get a little bit nervous because you hear we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. But you know, a lot of churches completely underemphasize or even ignore the Holy Spirit. It's much more practical. It's much more, hey, what we see is what we get, uh, and that's all there is to it. Well, the truth is somewhere in between. And, and so, uh, a lot, because most churches that don't talk about it, don't talk about it because they don't really understand it. But I got to tell you that not understanding is not a reason not to talk about this important aspect of God. It's not an excuse to ignore it. So I want to take some time this morning and talk about three things that we can know for sure, three things we can know definitively about the Holy Spirit. And these are in your notes and on the back of your worship program. And if you'd like to follow along, I'd love that. And they'll be on the screen too. So number one is this. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. Now, I've been saying it, okay? Uh, I've been saying it because I think that's a lot of the questions we sometimes ask. So often when we think about the Spirit, we'll refer to him as an it. But the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a he. And, and he's not a he because he's distinctly male, okay? He's not male or female, but he's a he because that's how Scripture refers to him. He has all the aspects of male or female, male and female, but, but of a person, not a thing. John fourteen sixteen says this. Jesus is talking, and he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Now, the word another in this verse is a funny word. Even in English, it's a funny word. The word another can have two different meanings. <clears throat> Let me give you an example. How many of you had kids that went trick-or-treating on Friday night, or you went trick-or-treating on Friday night, uh, part of the room? And so uh, when your kid got home, if you're anything like me, <clears throat> you might have said, hey, can I have a piece of your candy? You might have just reached your hand in and grabbed one. Okay, I did that too. Um, my kids aren't in the room, right? No, okay. I, uh, but, but you might say, like, uh, can I have a piece of your candy? And maybe they'd give you something like this, an almond joy, the holy grail, of Halloween candy, right? I mean, it's got 
chewy coconut, delicious chocolate, and that one almond on top, it just, man, in fact, this baby is lucky to have survived until now. I think uh, he won't make it past the second service. But Almond Joy is the holy grail of Easter, or of, of Halloween candy. And so you might have gotten an Almond Joy and opened it up and eaten it, and you would say, that was so good, can I have another one? Right? Meaning another of the same kind. Well, but then maybe your kid got some of these. These are now and laters. Anybody like now, now and laters? They, they should call these, they, they call them now and later because they're really bad now, but they're much worse later. You know, they get hard. And um, even if you like the flavor, which I can't even fathom, but even if you like the flavor, you can't possibly eat these without requiring many hundreds of dollars of dental work. Because when you chew into them, your fillings will pop out with the candy. And so you, maybe your child gave you a now and later and you ate it and you would say, ooh, I didn't really like that one. Would you give me another one? And you mean another of a different kind, Right? Give me an, I don't like that one. Give me another one. And so another has two different meanings. Well, in the Greek, there are two different words uh, that are used for another. One of them is the word heteros. The word heteros means another of a different kind, another not of the same kind. It's the root of where we get our English word heterogeneous. But that's not the word that Jesus used here. Instead, he uses the word that's translated as allos. The word allos means another of the same kind. It's the root uh, of where we get this English idea of an alter ego, where an alter ego is another part of you, right? And so Jesus uses the word, the word he uses is the word that's translated as allos, meaning the father will send you an advocate, another of the same kind, another just like me. In other words, a person, another person, someone to walk with you, just like Jesus walked with the disciples, Now, in fact, the word advocate in that verse that's used is the word paraclete. It's another Greek word. The word paraclete uh, is translated as advocate, but its literal meaning is um, to walk alongside of or to call to one side. And so the idea is that this Holy Spirit, this advocate that was sent to us, is called to our side to walk with us, to be with us. And he's another like Jesus. He's a person. Now, let me tell you why I'm going to so much trouble to tell you about this. Why is this so important? Because you can have a relationship with a person. You can't have a relationship with a thing. Now, I know you may say you love your car, or you love your house, or you love Nutella, right? But you can have a relationship, a real life, life altering, give and take relationship with a person. You can't have that with a thing. Okay, maybe with Nutella. I know some of you would say that Nutella has changed your life, all right? But really, you can't have a relationship with a thing, but you can have a relationship with a person. And the truth is the Holy Spirit is a person, and you can have a relationship with him. And Scripture tells us that when we accept Jesus as our Savior, okay, when we acknowledge the gift of forgiveness that Jesus gave to us on the cross, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you, inside your body, to walk alongside of you and give you wisdom and direction. Paul wrote it this way in Ephesians 1.13. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. And that seal was the promised Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And so the Holy Spirit was marked in you when you first believed. That's what that scripture says. And then the second one says that it came to live inside of your body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is where the Holy Spirit lives. Because the Holy Spirit is a person, we can have a relationship with him. And also because he's a person, the Holy Spirit has emotions. And the prophet Isaiah says that when we rebel against God, that we can grieve, our actions can grieve the Holy Spirit. 
Have you ever stopped to think about that? Like if you're in the middle of something sinful, if you're in the middle of doing something that's not a wise choice, that maybe your actions are going to grieve God, they're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. Man, if you would just stop to think about that, how many things would change in your life? And the Holy Spirit, because he's a person, has has emotions. Also, because he's a person, the Holy Spirit has desires. He has a mind. He has a will. Scripture tells us that he will advocate for us or even pray on our behalf. Romans 8.27 says, The Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. He searches the heart. He knows your mind. He will pray on your behalf. How does it feel to know that when you're at your weakest, even when you don't have the strength or the wisdom or the will to pray, that God's there praying for you? So the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. Number two is this. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. He's not one-third God. He is God. And this is one of the most misunderstood parts of God. The Holy Spirit is co-equal with God the Father and Jesus the Son. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to explain this, in large part because I don't really understand how it works. <laughs> okay, I mean... Uh, I honestly don't know completely how it works. How can three people be one thing or one entity at the same time? I don't get it. It's something that we don't see in nature, right? It's a community, this, this joint power, this shared responsibility among the three that we just can't really comprehend. You know what? That's okay. In fact, that's kind of the point, isn't it? I mean, the very moment that we completely understand God, he stops being God. Right? Our finite minds cannot begin to comprehend an infinite God. I love what Donald Miller, author Donald Miller wrote one time. He said, I can no more understand the totality of God than the pancake I made for breakfast understands the complexity of me. And think about that. We are created beings. How could we possibly understand the creator? You know, so some people will use this analogy when they're trying to explain this trinity, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is like water. Okay, water has three forms. Uh, it can be an ice, it can be liquid water, or it can be steam. And they're all three water, but they're all different. Or people will say that God's like an egg. An egg has three parts, the shell and the white and the yolk. And God has three parts, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God's not like an egg. God's not like water. God's not like anything. I love what Francis Chan says. He writes, he is incomprehensible, incomparable, and unlike any other being. He is outside our realm of existence and thus outside our ability to categorize him. While analogies may be helpful in understanding certain aspects of him, let's be careful not to think that our analogies in any way encapsulate his nature. So instead, what if we thought of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as having different roles to play? Like they're all God, all three fully God, all three have the full power of God with the power responsibility that comes with that, but they're each unique in the role that they play. Probably the best way I've heard it described is by Bruce Ware. He writes this. He says, each member of the Godhead is equally God, each is eternally God, and each is fully God. Not three gods, but three persons of one Godhead. Each person is equal in essence as each possesses fully the identically same eternal divine nature. Yet each is also an eternal and distinct personal expression of the one undivided divine nature. In other words, he says the Holy Spirit is God and is eternal. I mean, at the very beginning of the Bible, we see that the Spirit is floating over the water, hovering over the water when it's created. And at the very end of the Bible, it's God's Holy Spirit teaming with the church to call people back to God. God The Holy Spirit has always been, and Scripture tells us will always be. He's eternal. And so... 
The Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing, and the Holy Spirit is God. And number three is this, and this is the most important one for our lives today. The Holy Spirit gives you power. This is why the person of the Holy Spirit is so important for you to understand. Because you receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, just look at all the places, even in the book of Acts, where the first disciples are receiving power from the Holy Spirit and performing miracles. If you were just to read the book of Acts and look at every place where it says that people receive power from the Holy Spirit, you would be blown away. We definitely see this in Paul as he goes and starts and encourages these churches. We see it when he's able to heal people after receiving the Spirit. We see it when he's able to temporarily blind a man who's standing in his way. Wouldn't you like to have that power? I mean, you use it for good, of course, but I mean, we see it in Stephen and the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit gave him boldness and a vision. And he knew even as he was getting ready to be stoned to death for this message that he was giving, the Holy Spirit was there giving him power, the power to stand his ground. And we see it in Peter. You know, the book of Acts tells us that on the day of Pentecost, Peter got up to speak. He preached the first message and and the Holy Spirit filled the place. And 3,000 people were added to the church that day. 3,000 people. And if you read his sermon, I can tell you as a preacher, it wasn't Peter's preaching that drew people. I mean, you know what his first message was? It was repent. Repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of sin. Now, What if I were to stand up here every week and that was my message to you? If every week I got up here and said, repent, what you are doing is not good. You need to stop it. Now, do some of you need to hear that message? Yeah, probably. But if I got up and did that every week, you'd probably fire me pretty soon. But no, all this power came from the Holy Spirit. It was what Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1 when he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What a cool promise, right? When we commit our lives to the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ that we receive the Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of us and the Holy Spirit gives us power. And what kind of power? What, What power do we get as a result of God's Spirit? Well, great question. In the little bit of time we have left, let's look at what Scripture has to say about that. Uh, first, we've already talked about the power to pray. You know, the Holy Spirit will give us the power to pray. Romans eight twenty seven said that. And in my role as pastor, I get the opportunity to hear a lot of stories. And as you can imagine, when people come to see the pastor, well, those stories aren't always great. I mean, and some, so many times someone will come to me and they'll say, hey, could you be praying for me about this? Or could you pray with me about that? And I'll just be thinking as they're speaking, wow, I mean, I don't even know what to pray for that person right now. But then I'll remember the words of Romans eight twenty seven and how the Holy Spirit will intercede with you, will replace your groans with prayers. And I'll just start praying, okay, God, as I'm getting ready to pray for this person, I need Romans eight twenty seven to be true. I, I need that power that, that promises the Holy Spirit will intercede on my behalf. And I'll close my eyes and I'll start to pray. And you know what? I've never, ever had anyone stop me after I prayed and say, uh-uh, uh, that's not what I wanted you to pray. Instead, more often I'll get a, you know, thank you, that's exactly what I needed. And I can say with great confidence, yes, it is exactly what you needed because it wasn't from me. Like that was God's Holy Spirit interceding for you. It's exactly what they needed because it came from God. And the Holy Spirit interceded for my prayers, but you don't have to be a pastor to have that power. He'll do that for you too. And this is so vital for you, friends, because there is power in prayer. I mean, the power to fix relationships is contained in prayer. 
The power to mend the broken things of this world is in prayer. The power to heal the sick is in prayer. The power to deal with whatever it is that's going on in your life, that power is contained in prayer. So the Holy Spirit gives us the power to pray. Second, he gives us the, holy, the, the power to overcome fear. And Acts 1.8 again says, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Now, I've often wondered reading that verse, how are those two things related? You know, why does Jesus say in the same sentence, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses? Well, there was a lot at stake for being a witness for Jesus at that time, wasn't there? I mean, so many of the first believers were persecuted, uh, whipped, beaten, stoned, or even crucified for what they believed. And in the face of that opposition, they needed power. You know, the apostle Paul once wrote of the price that he paid uh, for his faith, for his conversion to faith in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11, and this is in chapter 29 of the story, he says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked and all so people would know about Jesus Christ. And we are afraid to tell our friends because we think we'll look silly. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, power to overcome fear. You know, you did not get a spirit of fear from God. Second Timothy tells us that God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. That's the power we get from God's spirit. Number three, you receive power from God's Holy Spirit. You receive power to defeat sin. First John three, nine says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. God's seed, that's the Holy Spirit. God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. The scripture says that those who are full of God's seed or the Holy Spirit can't go on sinning. Now, does this mean <clears throat> that God's people never slip up? Well, no. I mean, we're all human. None of us are perfect. But what it does show us is that we, as we allow God's spirit to fill us up, at the same time, sin is driven out. Like the more that we allow God's spirit to invade us, the less power sin has over us. Basically, it's saying this. You can be submitted to God's Holy Spirit or you can be submitted to sin. You get to choose because we're going to submit to one or the other. But you get to choose. In 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And this is so important because sometimes we'll think when we're tempted, this temptation is so great. Nobody has ever had to deal with this pressure that I'm under right now. And you know what? God says, no, no temptation has overtaken you except what's common. And it says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I mean, think about the last time you were tempted. Maybe it was this morning. Maybe it was today here in this room. I mean, you were tempted. Did God provide a way out? Probably yes, because it says that God will provide a way out so that you can endure it. But to find that way out, you've got to submit to God. 
Submit to his spirit that lives inside of you. So the next chance you have, a, next time you have a chance to say something that might hurt somebody's feelings, are you going to submit to sin? Or are you going to submit to the spirit? You know, the next time you think about uh, betraying a confidence through gossip, are you going to submit to sin? Or are you going to submit to the spirit? Next time you think about going back to that website or, or back to that channel or, or back to that place, am I going to submit to sin? Or am I going to submit to the spirit? The next time you pick up whatever vice it is you have, you have to ask yourself right now in this moment, am I going to submit to sin or am I going to submit to God's Holy Spirit, which he gave me as a gift, which can help me overcome sin. The God who loves me and created me and died for me and bought me at a price. That's what I need to submit to. Not sin. Sin is crouching outside your door waiting to attack. The Holy Spirit wants to come alongside you. And build you up. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to pray, power to overcome fear, power to defeat sin. That's a lot of power. And you know what they say. With great power comes great what? Responsibility. And as we close and as you leave, here's what I want to leave you with. What is that responsibility? You know, first of all, if, if you're not a Christian, I hope this makes you want to learn more. I mean, maybe you've never thought about this idea that God wants to live inside of you, that God wants to guide you and direct you. Maybe you've never thought about a God who wants to come alongside of you and to have a relationship with you and to give you power. Maybe it's the first time today you've ever heard that. I want you to know that you can start that relationship even today. I mean, after this service, I'm going to be up front. Our, some members from our prayer team will be up here. We would love to pray with you about that and talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you're here and you're already a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, you've been given great power. The the same power that propelled Paul all over the world to spread the gospel and plant churches. Uh, The same power that emboldened Peter, uh, who had been kind of wishy-washy in the past, to get up and proclaim God's kingdom. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is living in you. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to use it? I mean, it's the power to pray, the power to overcome fear, the power to defeat sin, and it's all been given to you. It rests in your hands. Would you pray with me? Father God, I'm so thankful for that power. So many times when, when I'm tempted or when I don't know what to do, I don't know how to deal with the things that I'm facing, I just thank you that you send me your power through your Holy Spirit. I, I, I thank you so much that you made a way for us that even as we were sinful, you made a way for us to come back to you through the cross. God, I'm so thankful that um, you love us right where we are, no matter who we are or where we are in this room right now, whether we've been Christians for 30 years or if we don't even know what we believe about you or we don't even know if we believe there is a God, that God, you're willing to meet us right where we are. You're willing to show us your love on the cross. You're willing to show us the power of the Holy Spirit. And that you're willing to, to take us from where we are to where you want us to be, God. But you won't drag us kicking and screaming. But that you'll come alongside us and you'll guide us through your spirit. God, I pray for the people in this room that haven't ever made that decision. That maybe need to just step back and say, you know what? I need that power. I don't know what to do with my life. My life's falling apart. Or I don't know what my purpose is. Would you just help them this morning, give them a renewed purpose? Would you help them desire to seek you on the cross, God? And we just thank you that each and every one of us who have proclaimed your name, who have 
made Jesus our Lord and Savior, you, you, you weren't happy to leave us where we are, but you have taken us through this process of transformation. You have promised us that we are not going to be the same on the other end of your work. And so thanks for that, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.